In this episode, I am once again joined by Bruce Francis, world-renowned Taoist master and author of books such as *Opening the Energy Gates of the Body* and *Taoist Sexual Meditation*. Bruce recounts his training as a Taoist priest in an ancient secret society, including psychic training. Sexual training, spiritual training, and more. Bruce discusses his training in Taoist exorcism, recalls the first exorcism that he witnessed, and tells stories about exorcising trapped spirits in concentration camps and other sites of historical suffering. Bruce goes into depth about his training with Liu Hongche, the Taoist immortal who would become Bruce's most significant master, and shares impressions and memories from that time, including. Liu Hongche's last great miracle. Bruce also reflects on personal enlightenment, astral projection, the business of religion, compares Buddhism with Taoism, and considers his own legacy as a Taoist master. So, without further ado, Bruce Francis. Bruce Francis, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And in the last episode, we. Took a, a voyage through your life and biography in these energy arts, and it really was a fascinating tale. And we're going to pivot today, quite specifically, into discussing your Taoist training as a priest, as a Taoist priest, and then further your training in the water method of Taoism with Liu Hongzhi. And in your book Taoist Sexual Meditation, you write about Wang. Shu Jin, although he never discussed the matter with me directly, I also knew that the venerable Master Wang lived with nine women, only one of whom was his servant and housekeeper. The other eight, yes. loosely speaking, were his concubines. Clearly, there was something about the old man that made them want to stay with him. Wang talked to me about a secret Taoist group with a comprehensive knowledge of sex and meditation far beyond what I could imagine. He gave me a personal introduction to this group. That trained adepts to become Taoist priests. So, could you take us to that time and your introduction to that group? Well, first, when I was with Wang, I was primarily with him、uh, for the internal martial arts Tai Chi Xing in Bagua, and I had no idea that he had. You know, I mean, I knew I knew we understood Qigong, but I had no idea he had anything to do with the Taoist group. Um, this particular Taoist group has undergone many name changes over three thousand years, but it's been the same group, and it was always one of the.、Um, China has 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 a long history of what you could call secret societies. Now, most secret societies are either political or criminally oriented. This one actually was spiritually oriented. And the reason why they had secret societies were, basically, the winds in China change all the time. So, whereas under one emperor, one group of bureaucrats in the government, oh, they treat you really well. Let the winds change a little bit, and they'll kill everybody in your group, because this was like、uh, maybe if Einstein had been around and making all of his、uh, discoveries and whatnot twenty years earlier. That still wouldn't have stopped Hitler saying, "Let's kill every Jew that exists." So this this is a fluctuation throughout Chinese history, and I belong to one of the groups that their conclusion was that make 
who's in it secret. Let teach what you're going to teach, but don't but don't publicize it at all because you just never can tell when the uh, the next flip is going to happen. And a lot of these flips in Chinese history happen over two or three hundred year periods, and that's something very hard for a Westerner to comprehend. I mean, we think, oh, what happened? Like, you know, what happened during the Renaissance? Well, like that's you know something that people in universities read about, but you got to realize the people living in the Renaissance that was their life. So, uh, after studying with him all day, I, I went to, uh, 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 you know, I had a hotel, a cheap hotel, you know, just money conserving all that. I mean, I remember I, I was just 19 years old. I was a teenager and I wasn't exactly flush. So, but, uh, then one day, you know, one of, uh, one of the people who was one of his students and working with him, he had connections in the hotel and Wong just right out of the blue said, oh, you like sex, do you? Because they obviously hurt a lot because the walls were not very thick. And those cheap hotels in Taiwan in those days, I mean, really, the walls were like paper thin. So I said, yeah, and this and that. And he started, you know, at various points, you know, considering it. And then through a translator, he explained to me that he was part of a group that one of their subjects was Taoist sexuality, something for which the Taoists are known for in the West, at least things that are written and whatnot about them put that in. So next thing I know, I'm doing that. And since I like shagging, I said, sure. And then it just started getting revealed over that two month period. What else was involved in this group? Not all of it. Some of that didn't come till later, but I was going, wow. And so, you know, it got summed up to, well, you know, anything you could ever want about learn about Xi is inside of this group but you had to be an initiate, blah, 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 blah. So I went back to uh, Tokyo and uh, in a place where I used to practice Tai Chi late at night, this giant, it was on the grounds in front of some big government building. I've, I actually feel silly. I never bothered to find out the name of it, but I never had any reason to. And, you know, I'd be doing my Tai Chi things for like many hours in, in a night. And then this old guy started just every once in a while started visiting and looking at me and, you know, I'd smile, but just keep on practicing. So I didn't want to be distracted. And then uh, he said, oh, and he said, oh, and he did some pushing hands to me and I was fucking freaked how good this guy was. I mean, it was like, it was, I may have studied with Jing Nan Ching very briefly when I was a kid, but this guy was as good or better. I mean, he just was, he was just beyond the ability of my young mind to comprehend. And so he said, oh, okay. But the way he worked it out was that he said that, well, I'm going to teach you some body work. And if you do the body work, okay, I'll teach you how to fight. That was it. I cared about fighting. I mean, I had done massage and all that crap since I was like 14 and was getting paid for it. And I was pretty good at it. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, that, that wasn't why I went to Japan for that. I went there primarily for martial arts anyway. So he would do things. And then, you know, very often what he would simply do is sting his fingers into a part of my body. I'd watch it go dead or I'd watch myself in amazing pain. He's saying, now, this is what you do to get rid of this. And next thing I know, within like 10 minutes, it's gone. So this is seeming a little bit, you know, Jesus Christville or something like that. So. I found out subsequently that he had actually been sent to observe me about should the priesthood want to invest the time teaching me? Because, and, you know, since I was the first white man who had ever been 
breached this particular thing. And given the history of the foreign occupations of China, there were still some bad feelings about that. But anyway, so the next thing you know, when I go back to Taiwan, they're saying, okay, do you want to? And it just started, you know, I got initiated and then we started doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was like truly mind boggling. So when I was there for short periods of time, I would focus on one or two aspects of it. But when I came back and lived in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, because the group was in both places and apparently it was all over Southeast Asia too. Uh, but that I never spent that much time in Southeast Asia. That the things that they did uh, you know, he started teaching and so I just started expanding. You know, the joke I've always made about, well, what did you learn? I said, birth, deaths, and exorcisms. So it's like, well, okay, how, how do you bring a baby in? Or how do you take someone through the process of quote unquote, getting reborn inside their mind and their body? So that's births. Deaths were that, what do you do with someone? Not only when they, in the process of dying, because a lot of people really go through a lot of shit in the process of dying. Okay, the Tibetans got a big thing, you know, with their things about, you know, the, the bardo between life and death and whatnot. But so I was taught how to take someone when they're before they're dying, when they die, when they're still in the middle ground between their body just being inert and their conscious getting ready to fly the coop of their body. And then what they do after that. Okay, because the Taoists have ways that they say that you can consciously practice after you're dead. So, okay, so, you know, I kind of went through those things and that was another branch. Uh, as I said, the first time I was just kind of like a senior in the thing, he just brought us to a place where somebody was like, I mean, this was out of the exorcist or worst. And uh, all, all the old guy said, I said, look, no matter what you do, do not look in that girl's eyes very dangerous so i didn't do it but the guy who was with me because he grabbed two of us uh he did and the next thing i know at some point blood's coming out of his eyes and every orifice in his mouth and the autopsy showed that his heart had burst okay so this is like this is not like you know exorcisms and the west nowadays is mostly taken as a metaphor for clearing out deep psychological garbage inside you <laughs> then they were actually talking about entities taking your body over and the psychological stuff is kind of like a step or two down the line. And I wouldn't want to use the term kid stuff because it's not kid stuff, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't considered to be that big a deal. Where in the West, it's the whole deal. So anyway, uh, and then all, all sorts of other things. I had to, we went through the teaching in the whole, Taoism is known for its sexual practices, but especially how its sexual practices can open up every, all the energy channels in your body and the energy centers in your in your body and how it can be used for the subject of enlightenment or if nothing else just to make a human being okay with sex which may be and there was no there was no prejudice it had to be with your wife or something or a concubine or in a whorehouse but it was about the fact that you would be okay with it and part of it was that you had to release all the things that sexuality be connect, connected to your entire lineage. So for example, go back all the interfamily problems you've had back 10 generations, sex is in the middle of all of it. It is because we didn't get here because a stork came flying over and dropped a baby in. I mean, you know, we bonked and that, that's how we got, but it wasn't the question that we bonked. It was what the psychic ties were that were engaged when you did it. 
So that was another lead into all the psychic work that was in Taoism. As I said, there was a lot of stuff. And most of it in the West is called esoteric. And most of it, Taoists do not talk about with people who are not initiated. They just don't. They don't do it because they're trying to keep a big secret. They're just saying it's like pouring water on sand. They can't do anything with it. It doesn't particularly help them. But then you have even the larger question of whether they're going to mind trip and start hallucinating around it. And that could, and that could twist their life apart. And so they just don't do that. So anyway, there were whole lots of things. And, you know, also the ordinary meditation stuff about, well, how do you resolve not just emotions, like a lot of, a lot of meditation, the way it's sold in the West, and that's the only word I can use. They're always talking about how the meditation helps you get rid of these emotions and that emotions. And the Taoists considered chilling out the emotions to be an easy part of the whole job. Okay, because that was mostly about the way your channels have gotten seriously distorted. But then they started going into meditation. They, they were looking at the subject of that. How do you stay conscious after death? How do you practice after death? How do you enter the psychic realm so you can actually see the, the subtle things that are affecting you, which psychology can't touch? Psychology can reorder the way you think. It can reorder the philosophy of how you're thinking. But it can't actually rewire what is ultimately responsible for that thought coming into your conscious awareness. Well, we did that stuff in Taoism. And it's not, the methods are quite different than they are in Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm only stating this because uh, I did Tibetan Buddhism from the 70s. I did Zen, my first sensation, like in the middle of the 60s. And so I'm familiar with it. And I also went far enough the ladder in Tibetan Buddhism where you know, I was authorized by my guru to teach Dzogchen to people who wanted to really learn. Of course, that was the hard part when he said people who really want to learn, which is why I don't teach it very much, because not most people don't. But anyway, I do advise Buddhists and try and make sense, because a lot of, especially where the Buddhism is kind of, I think, portrayed in the West, it can be terribly confusing, and there's so much jargon that's used that they don't actually, I think, get down to what the main points are, what's really essential, and what really is nice to know, but so what if you know it? I mean, here, if you knew Christianity, if you really knew just Christianity, you would, you would be and act like a Jesus. But no, what do most Christians do? Well, they can get up and give a really great speech about John verse 13, line 7, and they can give you all these great intellectual ideas about why you should believe what you should believe but never actually getting down to the person seeing what is actually being discussed directly personally unambiguously and so you have that same problem in buddhism and a lot of the taoism you see now in the west you get the same thing they take a couple of lines from the Tao Te Ching or some taoist book they've read and then what they do is they start riffing off of what they think it means and a Buddhist will kind of tell you what, well, the way a Buddhist would see this is, and a Christian would say from the point of view of Jesus Christ, this is what, but they don't actually know what the original people were talking about, which would be fine if it was all the same, but it's not. And, and, and the, the shadings of difference have to do with what you need to do to practice to arrive at it. And the second one is the shades of difference can mean whether you actually arrive at the point 
or you go off on a tangent that's a thousand miles from it. And it's very hard because when you get into the real subtle stuff that's in inside the human unconscious and that how what is outside of our bodies affects our consciousness, those differences can make huge differences, huge differences. Anyway, so I mean, there's a lot of things I don't want to go into. I mean, we, you know, but we, we, we did all this stuff because uh, they want that if you're going to be a Taoist priest, you're at some point going to have a flock. I'm using the Christian terms since it's common language. You're going to have a, 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 a going to have a flock, and they are going to come to you about what are the difficulties or problems with life. And you got to know what to do with them. Now, you can't know what to do with them unless you've done it yourself. Because just having an intellectual idea, well, we'll not, not now we're just back to someone who goes through a seminary but hasn't got the faintest clue what God or Jesus Christ is, but they sure as hell can throw the words back at you. Uh, but so we had to learn a lot of things that were very, very, very specific. Like, and you had to get over a lot of stuff. For example, when it started with the, even just to see if people were suitable for taking the training, they would do something and, you know, we'd be in a circle. There'd be 10, 15, 20 of us, depending what. And now they said, take off your clothes and everybody has to bonk whoever asked them to. And then you'd watch what they'd go through. Because sex, if you just take the act of sex, it really isn't that big a deal. People try to make it sacred. And, you know, they try and make like somehow that's God coming through you, which, I mean, frankly speaking, animals seem to do it and they don't show any indication of that happening. But they try and make it sacred or else they try and make it about getting power or about this. All of these things which you could make a case for them at an intellectual level. But the main point of it was that you could start realizing that there was something that was very, very alive inside you, which was clearly not coming from your thinking process and that you had to be able to accept it. I mean, it's one thing for someone to have sex who has men or woman who has been sexually traumatized. They've been raped. Or I'm not exactly sure what a three-year-old goes to when he's getting it up his butt or something, but hey, come on, that, that's, out, that's out there. Okay, now in the past 30, 40 years, Western society has started getting, let's just say, enlightened enough that they'll start talking about this because, but it isn't like it hasn't been going on since forever. I mean, that was the old method of, of pedagogy in ancient Greece and Rome. I mean, you know, that, that, that's, you know, knowledge was transferred through the butthole. But what did it do to the person? What did they end up thinking? How, you know, even for the people who just the kids who liked it and could accept it, what did that do to the inside of them? Well, you got to have some way of unraveling that. Because just coming up with a great glib explanation, which as an overview may be accurate, doesn't help that person. Because their issue is personal. It's not theoretical. It's not philosophical. So, and we had that. So we went, we went through a lot of things. You know, we had to become, learn to become a, yeah, I, you had to become to learn to become a doctor. Now, you know, they didn't say which one, there's eight branches of Chinese medicine, all of which have their doctors. And uh, I never, 
you know, I, I never figured I would have the time to really learn herbalism and I never liked acupuncture. Don't ask me why it's, there's no, there's no reason for it. It's not like I had some grand philosophy. I just didn't like it, but I learned Qigong Twina because I had done everything in martial arts and in about how to project energy, how to move energy inside people's bodies with my hand and with my mind that this was a natural fit. So that was the route I took. So next thing I know for the next, you know, 20 years, I'm taking that about as far as it went all the way to the end to working with terminal cancer patients and getting 40, 50% dead cures. I'm not talking about they're better. I mean, like they just, it's gone. And, but those were things that I did and we did, we did all this kind of training and there were things that came up in that. You know, one of the things is that it is one thing to be able to feel she. Like right now, if you did not have the ability to feel, how would you know if you went to the toilet if you were in the beginning, the middle, or the end of it? Okay? How would you know if your arm was bit by a dog if something had happened? Now, let's say you're going to disassociate. And yes, I see a dog biting me. Well, you go to the movies all the time. And although there are some people who've got, shall we say, boundary issues and mental issues, and they see somebody, something happen to someone on a film, and then like, like they think it's happening to them. Well, I'll grant you that they could experience that, but no, it didn't happen to them. It'd be really quite different, you know, seeing a dog bite someone or tear someone apart, which you can see on plenty of nature films. It's not the same thing as actually having a dog gnawing your leg off. But you, ha you have to be able to feel it now. And then we, then we start coming into that just requires some acuity, some specificity of your normal senses recognizing what's out there. But then we go another step further. And then we go to your psychic senses, which are incredibly subtle. So when, you, when you're talking about a meditation of getting rid of those things which are deeply plaguing you which have made life exceedingly unsatisfying for the whole of your life those things are happening at the level of your psychic senses they are not happening at the level of your ordinary senses now you could have your dog you could have your ear again chewed off by a dog okay which let's just hope it doesn't happen to anybody but it has been known to happen okay and so that creates an incredibly powerful physical shock which you could relive but then what about after that shock has healed, your ear has grown back, because this, this is a science fiction movie, and uh, you're back to normal still, you can have everything that was associated with that dog biting your ear off. You can have everything the way it's associated and connected to every other emotional, mental, and psychic experience of your life. And those are the things which hold the trauma in place. Now, you have in the middle of your brain the amygdala, and that's where most of the physical stuff is stored. Even when you have mental or emotional shocks, that's where it gets stored. But then you have stuff that's more subtle than that, because when you die and you no longer have a physical body, your amygdala ain't happening. So what is it that's allowing you in that intermediary state between one court, one body and another, allowing you to feel all that pain or all that confusion or all that, whatever the hell you're going to go through? Well, that's happening at the level of the psychic senses, which do not die when your physical body dies, that they're still somehow still connected to you. 
So then you got to start finding out, well, like, wait a second, like, you know, like, what are all these things that are connected inside of me? So then, you know, that that's a lot of stuff. And they have their practices for doing it, of which in Taoist meditation, it's all, they're all done in five ways. Standing, sitting, moving, lying down, and interacting with something, interacting with a person, interacting with a tree, interacting with a star in the sky, interacting with something inside you that's from the past that no longer you can't even quite remember what it is. But it still is a point counterpoint. And so the dissolving methods are about releasing these binds because even if a person see you know seems fine and everything at three o'clock in the morning when they wake up in a cold sweat that stuff will be activated because anything that's happening at a psychic level downloads into your physical body at some point and you experience it as though it's real but then someone says what do you mean where is it real i don't see anybody whipping you now or i don't see a dog chewing your leg off but you are experiencing and it's very very real and, you know, even all the modern science and whatnot has shown that when people experience that stuff, it has an effect that's almost as strong as the real thing. And the only reason why they say almost is that because of humanitarian and legal concerns, we can't get someone who's having that happen purely at a mental or a psychic level. And then, okay, that's cool. Now we're going to have a real dog chew your leg off and let's see what you go through. Can't do that. That's just, that violates all the... Uh, the protocols, but yet, and when someone did that stuff, an example would be Joseph Mengele, the doctor at Auschwitz. He has gone down in history as the blackest, most evil, whatever, whatever. And all he was being was scientific. Well, let's find out what happens in real time. Okay, so as long as, but, but because it's happening with a human being, no, human beings are created by God. You are damaging one of God's creatures. You are in direct violation of the God code. Then, then, then the problems start. Is there anything else you want to ask? I mean, I'm just, I'm just riffing. I mean, that's about it. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. You wrote in this book here, Taoist Sexual Meditation, that the thing that more than anything else persuaded you to embark on this seven-year course of study to be ordained as a Taoist priest was discovering an unconscious, and you, to quote you here, an unconscious and almost naive lack of awareness of my inner being, yeah. which you write also extended into my personal relationships. I'm very curious about that. What is it that you discovered when you started to get close to this group that what are you describing here? This lack of awareness of your inner being, how did it extend into your relationships and, and how did that change as you got involved with this group and, and learned, learned these, this curriculum? Well, okay. All right. So I'll try and, put this in i could i mean i could make this personal but then it's going to sound like an ego trip and the fact of the matter is that um a thing that's very useful for i think for any human being to recognize is that there is nothing that is inside you that is not in every human being on the planet so if you want to talk about it in a third party disassociated way it happened to them or you talk about what happened to you what happened was the same and the Taoists don't have this, 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 uh, a major practice in Taoism, which is required for a person to get self-enlightened, is that the Chinese term is wangwa, which means forget I, forget me. Now, 
that is the first major stage in almost every form of meditation. For example, Ramana Mahashi, his thing about becoming enlightened, who am I? Well, if you actually really get who you are, then quote unquote, you get enlightened, you get self-enlightened. That doesn't mean you get enlightened to everything that's in the entire universe. For that, you've got to connect to everything in the entire universe. When that, that's the tricky part. But uh, who am I? Wow, okay. When you, start, when you start talking about in all of Indian philosophy, you have the idea of ahamkar, which means the sense of I. Well, if you get rid of that, then by the general Hindu strictures, you will be considered to be enlightened. Okay, but that's still not saying you are whatever is in a whole universe. Where Buddhism might might um, go a bit beyond this, is that there's a phrase from the Buddha that it says the Buddha is aware of as many worlds as there are grains of sand on the Ganges. Now, how many sands? How many grains of sand there in Ganges? Infinite amount. It cannot be counted. But that is somewhat saying that, you know, the Buddha, after he realized who he was, his mind also expanded to recognize all and everything. Okay? Which makes him different than almost all the enlightened people who came through India's history. But that's a definition of a Taoist immortal. Taoist immortal have done that. That's like, you know, how do you how, how did you graduate in mathematics well you took a bloody test and you got a certain percentage right that meant that you understood the math okay well that is the equivalent in the spiritual realm but i'll ask your question again sorry i got a little well i was asking to quote you you said there was an unconsciousness and a lack of a naive lack of awareness of your inner being, which was okay, extending so into okay, personality. Right, all right, you're, you're talking about this from the ordinary human personality perspective. At this stage. Okay. Okay. Well, look. Most folks, I observe this in me, and I have observed this in God knows how many thousands of people I've worked with. Something happens. And, uh, it starts taking you over. For example, some people just get incredibly sad, which then takes them to depression. And so can you actually recognize when you're depressed? Now, if you ever meet a person who's seriously depressed, they do not recognize they're depressed. Very commonly, if you meet someone who's really angry, where I love the Chinese phrase, like they could tear the skin off a rhinoceros, that they don't recognize they're angry because they're just having a normal response to what's happening on the earth. Well, yeah, because they're angry. And if they weren't angry, the same sort of facts would come in front of them and they wouldn't get angry. But they don't. They're wrapped up in it to where that, that sense of I inside them is completely taken over, preoccupied, permeated by whatever this thing is. I mean, it's just like you have a glass of water. It's clear, clean water whatever the color is, neutral, white, something, however you want to think about it. Now, you pour some really strong purple liquid inside it, stir it a few times. What color is the liquid in the water? Purple. The water, it's gone. It disappears from awareness. You can't see it in the glass. What you can see is the purple. And that's what happens when you have all these, not just powerful emotional states, but powerful mental states. Now, 
fixation at that level of the mind. If you, if you were a complete racist in 1860 Alabama, you could not look at a black person and not see half of the horrible things that could happen in the universe. That's a direct personification of it. That's the devil in flesh. Or else you might take another position that some of the Christians held that, you know, this is one of God's children that is just of such a devolved state. They're like some sort of a very low animal. And your responsibility is to try and bring them into the light of God and somehow make them go from being minus 5,000 years old to being whatever their age is, 15 or 20. But this stuff is so firmly anchored inside your mind. You do not see the person in front of you. What you see is this idea or this programming made flesh. Okay, and that is what you see. And that's why you had, or in ancient Rome, person has a slave, the slave tries to run away. Hell, they would hamstring him. They, they would put nails to their Achilles tendon. They would have him strung up and crucified. They would have him strung up and get some sort of insect that would eat their testicles. Because this is normal. This is, life is, the sun goes up, you do this to a person who disobeys, and there, there's no consideration of what are you doing to them? Would you want this done to you? When something like that is happening to you, there's no recognition this is happening to you. So you simply go off on your preset program, whatever it is. Getting angry, sad, and those are emotions. Well, what about thinking? You know, a lot of the worst stuff that's happened in the human race, if we go on a macro scale, has not primarily happened because the individual who perpetrated it just had an emotional fixation that was truly fucked up. No, it happened because they had ideas that were truly fucked up. And everything inside them, those ideas then made them have the emotions. And those ideas said, this is what you should do. Okay, and this is the nature of the human condition and people inside the human condition. The Taoist always said, well, you need to become aware of what's inside of you. Now that in the beginning is, it can be a long, hard slog. I think there's no, there's no two ways of putting it. Now, whether that long, hard slog is a, is a, is a month for a person who's like, you know, an inch from ticking over to being enlightened, or it's 50 years for a person who's centuries away from being enlightened. But from their perspective, it's a long, hard slog. It's a long, I mean, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a thing. So whatever you have inside you, and I started recognizing, as I said in the last thing, my mother was a schizophrenic. She tried to kill me multiple times when I was a child. And I had a, I had a volcano inside me that was no business that even when something happened and adults tried to control me, they could not. Okay. Now, I mean, they should have been in an adult is four times my size should have been able to physically control me, but they couldn't. They couldn't because when that thing came out of me, I had no fear. All I had was, I had distilled anger. Okay. It wasn't even so much. I may have hated my mother, but I didn't hate all these other people, but I still had the anger. That was the reflection of that dislike. Okay, so you go through and you had to like get rid of those things. And now the Taoists have 
all kinds of, in the fire tradition when I was a Taoist priest, we mostly work through light. You could say visualizations uh, and sound, you could say vibrations. And we finally got that when we could clear any light that was inside us from, and it, it didn't work that way because it wasn't like in Tibetan Buddhism, like you, know, you visualize yourself having like a black ink, like something for when you're, you know, having a particularly negative mood. Well, no, we didn't do that in Taoism. We just took to where it had a shade of something that was in the universe. And when you can completely clear that and the vibrations that we're putting out from being, you know, either insanely fast or insanely slow or penetrative to an ability that like sometimes, you know, you just would stand there and feel like you were being thrown out of your body. That's the best way I can put it. Right now you have the experience and think about it, something that could just come take you in and throw you out, you know, and, and many things like that, not just that one thing, which is very dramatic. So you had to go through all those things. And as you did, then all of a sudden you found out when you reached a certain point, and usually something would occur that would make it obvious you would reach a certain point, that when someone did something, uh, what, what is the classic example you see in movies? Somebody's walking down the street and one person bumps into their shoulder. One person goes ballistic and kills the other person. Okay, previous to that, that would whether you did it or not, that was what came up in you. Let's kill the motherfucker. That's it. But then it got to where you just went, won't that stuff Rosa, and you could you could see what it was. And you said, Yes, I could kill this guy, but it's really not worth it. And it's not really what I want to do. And, and then you could even go so far if you had any compassion in you, you could start thinking about what made this guy that screwed up that he just wanted to bump into me. Because that's not something somebody would do if they weren't perturbed. They're only going to do it if something inside them is really bothering them. So, okay, so like a dog, they, they got to dominate for a few seconds to not feel as though they are a crushed down submissive. Okay, great. So I went through that stuff. And while I was going through that stuff, you know, we were learning how to open up the channels of your body. And then you, because then you were just also not just learning about how that was doing it at a mental or psychological level, but how is this stuff actually happening inside the chi flowing inside your body? inside your channels, the way it's causing one channel to connect to another, how it's causing this chi to mix with that chi. And the third thing that comes out of it is different than either of the first two. So you know, we did all sorts of ways like that. And, you know, part of that was that some of the teachers would deliberately, if they felt you had been traumatized, they would terrorize you to a degree that was freaky. Sometimes they didn't even have to talk. All they do is project their mind towards you and then, whoa, the next thing you know, you're right in the middle of it. Or it could just be that they could try and suppress you with something like, you know, if something has truly been the cause, one of the big causes of people getting having really twisted is that they felt they wanted to express themselves, but they were, they were squished right down to an atom and they had no freedom. It's like they were chained the whole time. They, they, they couldn't open up their mouth because it was sewn up. They couldn't move their arms. And like, so of course you can visualize that stuff. But in Taoism, what they did was that in the fire method, not by visualizing, but by actually inducing the experience inside you at its full strength, which was what it was like in real life. If there's any objection to, not everybody I think can succeed the whole way with visualizations because 
what visualizations is they can go into the place in your brain that kind of tell you this goes to that, that goes to that, that goes to that, that goes to that, because at each one going to the next one, there's a series of pictures which induce that. The Taoists didn't really do that as much as they just made you go directly cutting out the pictures and going right into what it was. So, you know, that's why, you know, they don't, uh, the Taoists don't take a lot of all the psychological crap, claptrap uh, that seriously because yes they say that can give you some relief what it can't do is resolve the problem unless you have the super therapist of the century and then i guarantee you what they're doing is not strictly what therapists do that's just the overlay through which they're really doing what they're doing okay is, do you have another question here mm -hmm. of course many i've got many questions um when in this particular way of working, and we're talking now about the Taoist priesthood training, the fire tradition way of working. And one of the teachers would evoke or induce that experience in you. Mm -hmm. What were you required to do then in response to that? Was what method did you apply or posture, internal posture? Did you, what was the what was the response well, from you? First of all, if you talk about you know the specific techniques, there's too many of them. Yeah, you are right. going to generally do some form of qigong or neigong in any one of the five ways of practicing to get you out of it. But it's like, you know, what do you do when you take an animal and you lock it in a cage? Well, first it goes nuts and it wants to claw out and then it just starts trying to find a weak spot in the cage and keep pounding against it. And the various practices you would do would be how to pound on a spot to get out of it. If you go in each one, I mean, you know, let's say a person did something with standing postures. I could go through, and I don't have the time, and I don't have the inclination right now. I could go through at least a thousand techniques that are involved in that. If you're talking about sitting, I could go through 10,000 techniques that are involved in that. But if you take away the techniques, and you take away what they're trying to do, what I just said is what you're trying to do. And then you just have to get into the, depending upon the technique, what is its particular speciality in terms of altering your mental framework, un altering your unconscious mind, or, un or, or breaking up and putting back together what's moving through the energy channels of your physical body and of your mental body and your psychic body and your karmic bodies. Because each of them have their own specific things which are more valuable for what type of glitch you're encountering. It's not one size fits all. But you talked earlier about self-enlightenment and then there's connecting with the universe. And that is something as we were just discussing before we started recording. Quite a difference when you made in 1981 contact with Yu Hong Che of the water tradition. Um, is there more to I mean, you could say a lot more, but is there anything that is worth mentioning now further about the Taoist training before we before we compare and contrast with with what you experienced with Lu Hong Che? Well, there, there was Okay. When you talk about getting self enlightened, what you are essentially discussing is freeing yourself from all the identities 
usually one by one or in groups, which in aggregate altogether are what create this underlying sense of I. I'm not talking about I just as a grammatical convenience. Okay, you know, you, you say, I move the wallet. You can't talk about the eye of the wallet moving over here, unless you're telekinetic, okay, then maybe you could. But you're talking about something that is very distinct as a grammatical reference point. Like I'm saying, well, I think this, you think that. And if there truly is no difference, then whatever you think is inside of me immediately, what's inside of me is inside you immediately. And I don't think anybody, any human being has uh, made that as a general proposition. We do talk about some people, how'd you know I was thinking that? Well, they can get the psychic waves that are, that are floating on the top of you and are coming out, and that's how they do that. And they can read them. But that's not the same thing as being aware of what's inside of you. So I'm you, you're me. Okay, fine. And these are used, but now we start getting what is I and what is you. Now, if you go into I, there is no clear demarcation that you can intellectually describe. I mean, you can to a certain degree. I mean, the, the one the one the Buddhists do, I think, is a nice one. Uh, and... The Taoists have things, but it, it doesn't work exactly the same way. But okay, the what is it? The heart suture. You know, what are you? Are you? It's, this goes back. It's essentially the same thing Ramana Mahashi was doing. Okay, who who am I? Uh, I'm in my head. Okay. If you didn't have your head, would you still be here? On my hand. If your hand were cut off, would you still be here? Your sense of me is not going to go away regardless of what you do to what's inside your body. Because there's something that's a conglomerate of all, and the Taoists just call it the 10,000 identities, that all together gives you, but it's not really the end, the, the way that just that the identities cohere. There's something that they all attach to that's utterly stable. And that thing that is utterly stable is what goes from life to life to life to life. That's actually what reincarnates. And everything else just depends upon how much of the stuff that was around that centerpiece managed to stay cohered to it in the reincarnation process. But those things aren't responsible for you reincarnating. They're just effects you're going to have when you come out and all of a sudden well, you're going to, you're going to think, wow, you know, I can be it's like a super top basketball player because you remember the NBA last time. Because you have a memory of what I had to go through to become a basketball player and what it was to be good enough. So you could say that, but then you're also talking about what is not something that has any root in time and space. And that's what your eye is. And the thing is that when you get to the point where you recognize what your eye is, you're beyond space and time. Okay, it's beyond space and time. You cannot well, my eyes here, but then when I die, it went over there, and then it came back and went over. No. It's everywhere and nowhere at once. So this is a thing in every idea you have, every feeling you have, every projection you have, every mental contortion your mind can do. Ultimately, that comes back to the eye. But as you start looking to what are the things that are attached to the eye, well, that's what you think you are. That's my thinking. That's my feeling. That's my 
suppositions. That's my underlying suspicions, beliefs, blah, 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 blah. But that's still not your I. And so in all the old Hindu stuff and Buddhist stuff and Taoist stuff, that's got to go. When that goes and you actually have what that clear space is, then whatever that thing is, that is what you have to take to learn internal alchemy. Because now you are freed of the time-space constrictions. And that's the only way you can start going to the ends of the universe. Otherwise, whatever the constriction is will, will hold you in a place and you can't go beyond that. My teacher, Liu Hongjie in Beijing, um, I was not a fan of the reincarnating from body to body before I met him. Because I have a, a for better or worse, I was cursed with having one of those very high intellects that could be exceedingly logical. And on, from the point of view of logic, you can't come up with reincarnation. No, you can make things that are parallel. And then you can say, well, if, if A is such and B is such, then C must be the same thing that's in A and B. Not necessarily, because as an old thing that was, uh, is, is in logic, it's called inference is not evidence. So you can infer something. That doesn't mean it's true. And it also, it could be true the first trillion times, but not the second trillion times. Because if something is true, it cuts across all boundaries. And your perceptions, I'm afraid, are not quite, most humans' perceptions are not quite that developed. They just don't have that. So I could, I could recognize, and he said, he said, until you can see and recognize what it is to move from body to body not as an idea as a fucking reality like here you see he used many examples but here um most people today that they, they like they like watching martial arts on tv mma is very popular you know i mean hell the commercial interests of so okay so a person can see someone go boom and the person goes flying up in the air and goes out unconscious and God knows how many fantasies they'll make about who they could hit and what they could do. Okay, I used to call that when I was younger, the elephant punch. Okay, so you hit an elephant, up he goes, down he goes. But then wait a second. So you can have all these ideas, but you don't get what that is until you actually can do that to somebody. And not only can you do it, you've done it. You can't get it till you hit the elephant, up he goes, down he goes, and he's unconscious. Because then whatever the reality of that is, and the reality of anything is not one thing. It's usually a composite of God knows what is a composite of. And so you couldn't. So he said, until you can start seeing beyond this life, you're never, you're just never going to buy the reincarnation bit. And I had this in India with a friend of mine who were very good friends and, and we were going to go to India together and everything in, in uh, a second time. And I'm in India and we got, oh, he died in a motorcycle accident. So being there, they said, oh, what do you think he's going to reincarnate as? He says, you don't believe in reincarnation. What do you care? What difference does it make if I told you? Because it wouldn't have been real. It would have been inferred. Okay. And so when it happened that I did break that barrier, then what my teacher started doing with me, which I have to say was, was freaky, and this really was not a hallucination. 
he would take me on what I used to call these magic carpet rides. We'd sit and next thing you know, I'd be moving out of my body and literally he would take me through the universe. And I hit planets and different weird shit and whatever and vast vistas and, you know, and then when he figured that my energy was strained to where he had to bring me back, otherwise I might just completely break apart. He'd bring me back and I kept on doing it. And I've been working on internal alchemy since he died. Uh, he said in the last day we were together, he taught me like, what was this final thing in Tai Chi? What was this final thing in Bagua? And then he says, well, you know, I hope I have time to teach the rest of you because he dies the next day, which kind of meant he knew he wasn't going to, but, but still, you know, I started seeing things, but at least he then downloaded to me and as they've been doing for the past year and a half, well, how you do this stuff. But knowing how to do it and then doing the practice and getting it done, it's like knowing that throw seed in ground, put water, put fertilizer, come back 300 years, you got a giant tree. Well, you know, that 300 years has still got to go through while every stage of that tree growing is happening. But he made that pretty clear, and I've been working on that. And people say, well, how do you do it? And then the answer I can get is, how the fuck do I know? I'll tell you, when, I, when I've done it, then I would know how it was done. Until I've done it, I would not know how it's done. I would just have the markers of what I, how I would want to proceed in the process. Meeting someone like Yu Hong Che, and I know you've written about this, and you have spoken about this uh, before, other places, but when you think of him and you remember back to that time, that first meeting, and the, and the years you spent as his close disciple, one of only two since the communist revolution. Can you paint a bit of a picture of the sort of man he was, of the sort of communication you had, of the rhythm of the day you spend with him? This is now we're coming back to the biographical for a moment, just to just to invoke, evoke a little bit of, of the quality of, of this teacher. Of yeah, your. I'll try a few simple things for what it's worth. Uh... The other student that Liu Hongjie had, he had him from the age he was about 12 to about 14. Then he left Beijing and everything else he taught him, he taught him by letters, not in person. He got me, he got me when I was in my 30s, when I already was in Taiwan, Hong Kong, what they called a young master. So we were starting off from different points. And the other person, he didn't teach his method of meditation. Mm. That person, the serious meditation stuff he did, he did in the Huashan tradition after he left Beijing, because he was a, a, in the Cultural Revolution, they had two factions. They had the factions of Liu Xiaoqi, and they had the factions of what, for want of a better word, let's just say Mao. Let's forget about who the person was. And uh, Mao Zedong faction were the more radical, went along with Mao's ideas of continuous revolution, revolution and they were nasty son of a bitches just as Mao Zedong was a nasty son of a bitch. There are two ways about it. Now, whether he was ultimately good, would be good for Chinese history over a few thousand years run or not, that remains to be seen. But while he was alive, he was nasty. My favorite phrase was, if you liked Hitler, you thought Stalin was a nice guy, you're going to be in love with Mao. Okay, so he was worse than the two of them put together. But, and the other side of it was Liu Xiaoqi, whom Mao Zedong knocked off. 
and they would have these big fights like you know Baiwa told me they'd first have them in like a, they'd have them sometimes in Tiananmen Square and there'd be like 8,000 people on each side you know we're talking about this this is a bit different than a street gang okay they were they, they really weren't messing around but uh, political fervor has a tendency to bring on mass insanity anyway uh they started off with fists and then uh, it started going to where they'd have poles and then the swords came out okay and by what i went through all that and in the leo Xiaoqi group he was he was what they called a red guard general really tough fighter i mean really tough fighter top motivator you know teacher whatever word you want to use anyway when all that got finished then he went off and went around china and he did he did quite a bit of stuff in Shandong, which is actually where he did learn the majority of what became known as his, you could say, his meditation work. I know because I learned it with him. I mean, I did it with him. I mean, I was his student. At the time I was with Bai Wa, he only really had one student in Hong Kong, and that was me. Uh, he had a few other people he saw sometimes, but he never really spent any time with him. Uh, so... What was Leo Hongjie? And, and Bai Wa was... Nothing like Leo Hongjie. I mean, if you wanted to say, what did he look like walking around? First of all, he was skinny. I mean, seriously skinny, and he always wore the Mao suit simply because it was given for free. Anybody in China could have a Mao suit. He had virtually no money. He had, you know, just enough to kind of survive on, have enough food so he didn't die. And first of all, he made you incredible smile on his face but it wasn't it was a smile without any affectation it's just a smile there was no he was you know i've been from someone he had learned how to smile or was trying to smile to have an effect it was just a smile and he had a very soft voice and the thing that was most noticeable right from the very beginning is that this guy was smart as a matter of fact the opinion i held by the time um, I mentioned that when I was a kid, we always see place with like all these Nobel prizes. I never met anybody in my life who was more intelligent or perspective than, than Leo Hongjie. And I had one of those mega high IQs to where I wasn't just like, you know, an idiot seeing someone who could put two and two together as being smart and, and incredibly perceptive. Give him, give him, give him any, the way he could string things together was like, it was unbelievable. But he just said, oh, okay. And, uh. So then he said, oh, well, you do Bagua, okay. So I didn't do any Tai Chi with him on the first trip. I only did Bagua because that was my passion and a half. That's the best way of putting it. I always thought Tai Chi was very good and very useful, but Bagua was uh, what I loved. Or I'm going to quote a martial art master, a Tai Chi master in New York, who I'm, I'm not going to say his name is being polite. But that's how he used to the place. He said, oh, Tai Chi for health, gambling for fun. Okay, so and this guy was like a real compulsive gambler and he loved gambling as i must admit hell of a lot of chinese have throughout all of history i mean to go out gambling they they, they 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 sell their daughters into into slavery and in the whorehouses i mean so chinese got a big thing about gambling really really big thing about it uh and he had me practice in doing things and initially he just said there was just this air that was in the room that was insanely thick it was a psychic air that was in the room it was insanely thick 
and then he would tell me what to do and go around he would you know show me a move and he'd say okay now you go try it and when i started going especially when i really started going fast i would notice out of the side of my eye that all of a sudden i would feel this stuff come inside my body to raise my hand or make my hand go down or and and i would just watch his finger wherever his finger went that's where i went it was something that was grabbing me from the inside it wasn't like i was doing a movement the better way the only way i can put it is the movement was doing me and and after everything and everything got exhausted and you know and, and that went on and sometimes i would get so exhausted i would lie down in his bed and i couldn't move i couldn't move a muscle in my body i never did this this is you get a thing when you really do really good internal martial arts that your insides get worked so hard that's what gets tired it's not your muscles that get tired it's not even your brain it's the inside of your body gets tired okay so you know and he then he would tell me these stories about you know various and sundry Taoists and what they did throughout history and then you know at the end of two months he just said okay you know this and that you know and I, I wasn't gonna I didn't give a shit about diplomas I mean I had offers of having all these high degree black belts when I was younger and I just said forget it I'm not interested but you know I got talked into and the next thing he wrote something and you know that was nice because you know it's told Americans like diplomas okay so, okay, so I'll get a diploma and they went back and there was no, there was just goodbye. It was nice meeting you. It wasn't anything like, I'll see you again. And then I saw him again a couple of years later. And then we went through a whole different phase because that was after my back was broken. And so he was just, there was this air of silence and suspension of all and everything that I, I never even experienced when I, when I, uh, what do you call it? Back in the seventies, I had a, an interview with a bunch of people with the Dalai Lama. Yeah. But then again, you know, the purpose of that meeting was something different, but yeah, he was, I mean, he didn't have a personality. He didn't have one. I mean, he could put one on, he could make you laugh and he could smile and he could do this and he could do, you know, he could play the game as the phrase goes. But when you really just really looked inside him, there was nobody there. There just was no one there. And so I said, hmm, from what I understand, this guy be real meditation master. Okay, so then I just went with it. And from that point on, I never, never even asked questions, who was this guy? Because anytime I had some suspicion of who he was, he then went and did something where I said, boy, did I get that wrong? Yeah, or what is the phrase? Uh, well, is he tall or short? Well, what Lee always was, he's tall, short. There was no or, or he was tall and short. There was, there was never any sense of anything in him that was a dichotomy. So that's a bit what it was like, but I don't know. I mean, it didn't take all that long, and especially on the second trip, which lasted over three years, where, you know, I just started developing incredible love for that human being. But the love I had for him was not the emotional love of a girlfriend or, a, you know, something you would have a particular fascination for. It was just, I guess the only term I could use would be universal love. So like it, when he died, it really hit me really hard. It was like the light had gone out of my life, you know, and it wasn't, I stayed in Beijing all those years to be 
to be learning what he had to teach and the way he was, not for whatever goddamn technical information or capacities or whatever I could get. Because you just don't run into someone like that very often. When he did die, how did you orient after that? Having found somebody like that and orienting towards them in that way, how did you go on after his death? Well, the first thing I had to go through the whole bit because he had adopted me in this kind of Chinese Confucian Taoist ceremony. Me and his kid had to uh, do the burial rites. And we did that. And then, you know, there was one time when, you know, I asked Leo, I said, well, if you die, is it okay if I study with other people? He said, go ahead. Just who knows? And what I found is that I studied with some other people very briefly in Beijing. And every once in a while, one of them would do something that would be unexpected. And all of a sudden, it would be like, Leo's words and Leo's present was right there. And somehow, something which I had half gotten, I got. Hmm. And then later on, I had I had the same thing that then, okay, then I traveled around China for a bit. And I had to make the decision whether I was going to stay in China. Uh, and my ex-wife had, uh, you know, she wanted out. I mean, she was only staying there because of me. All I can say is that it, living living in the middle of the communist den was no pleasure. Okay, just like I would imagine. <sighs> Racism is a fact in the world. I realize we live in a particular period of time now where people who are still often at a, at, a, at a childhood emotional thing want to make things about being woke and you can't use this word, you can't use that word. <clears throat> I hate to say something uh, if it bothers you about something you see is so horrible that you revolt against it when it has nothing to do with you, okay, then you're never going to get past this problem. It hasn't got to do with the words that are used. It hasn't. And now, the Chinese, they had a lot of reasons to uh, be pissed off with foreigners, okay? Slaves in Rome had a lot of reasons to be pissed off with their overlords, okay? The members of the Ottoman Empire had lots of reasons to be pissed off with the Turks. The blacks in America had lots of reason to be pissed off with their white overlords. And why were they pissed off? Because they had damn good reasons. And then, you know, it went how it went. Well, in China, they had a thing about calling people foreigners which meant out of country. And I'm just not going to use the word that we use commonly in America because then I'll be, oh, you're a racist. I'm not a racist. That's what they did. And, you know, these words could cut, and there's no two ways about it. But it was always, but even got to a point where it didn't even cut. I mean, that, that's how you get called. That's how they think of you. That's how it is. The sky is blue. What, are you going to complain it's not, it's not purple? I mean, shouldn't it be purple? I would like the sky to be purple. Why isn't it purple? Or, oh, my mommy, my mommy tortured me by saying I, was, I, was, I wasn't a purple child. I mean, so now I'm going to get pissed off with the color purple. Okay, great. 
You can. I mean, I'm not saying you can and people do, but it doesn't really, uh, and it, it got to where, you know, I was getting pretty easy to blow my cork also because I'm an American and I make no apologies for it. And across a lot of the world, people love Americans and they hate Americans because of ideas they have. And almost all of them have never actually met an American, which is the same thing in America. You've got Americans who have all these ideas about people around the world. And I always ask, have you ever met someone like that? No, but they have an idea. And so the idea takes over their mind and that becomes their ego. And then, you know, then we're stuck with all the, with all the perversions the human mind is capable of. So I left and by the time I left Beijing, I was at a point where I wanted to, if I could have said, you know, Santa Claus is here, I'm going to give you a gift. What do you want? I would have said, I want one gift. I want to just remember enough Chinese to order food in restaurants, get hotel rooms and buy tickets. I don't want to know any more Chinese. Because if I would start speaking with someone, a lot of them, I, I just, I mean, I'd get this, you know, what I call, if you want to use the term racist shit all the time. And some of it was that, and some of it was just to make you feel sad about how damn ignorant the people who were doing it work, because they clearly were doing things which they absolutely no idea, A, whether it applied to me, and B, whether it actually ever did apply to anybody. It's cool they had were the stories. And then from the stories, they make up this whole giant lattice of whatever all that means. And, and so then I, I get to Hong Kong. And at that time, I don't know if I said this the last time, and I really don't remember, but um, someone who I had met in my earlier days, my first teacher in Tibetan Buddhism was Dujin Rinpoche, who there were, there were five people who walked out of Tibet who were considered to be the people in Tibetan Buddhism. Dujin was one of them, okay? Along with Ding Lokense, Sakya Pandita, the Dalai Lama, and the Karmapa. Well, the Karmapa's number one boy, known as his regent, that's the word we gave him in English. I'll just call him number one boy. I'm from New York. That's how we think about it. Was a fellow called Kala Rinpoche. And uh, widely known as being one of the intellectuals in Tibetan Buddhism. And when I got down, I sat in front of in front of him doing this, the Kala Chakra, which is the, the, the wheel of life. It's one of the big things in the Kargu thing of Buddhism. And I'm looking at him and Kala Rinpoche had almost the identical body type of my teacher in Beijing. And he also put out this incredible intellectual energy without him saying a word. Same thing Leo had, nothing unusual. But then... He started going through stuff and, you know, and, and, and there were times when I could never visualize. Okay. I couldn't do it. Also, for example, I don't dream, you know, the big, the big rap they have about dreaming is everybody dreams. They just don't remember it. It's actually not true or anyway in Harvard and not in Harvard in Oxford, they did a lot of research. They found out two, 3% of people never dream, never will, ain't going to happen. It's just whatever. Don't ask me how, but that's what you're born with. And he would, he would do stuff and, but I couldn't visualize. But then when he started talking about the kingdom of Shambhala, I'm right in the room. And I mean, it's like, it's around me 360 degrees. And so 
I figured I was having a waking vision. I don't know if anything to do with dreaming or not, to tell you the truth. I mean, I have my theories about it, but they're only theories since I haven't been on both sides of the coin. Visions I've had since I've been fairly young, but not, 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 not this stuff of, you know, visualizing visualizations. So he did things like that. And then I noticed something. And I started going, wow. And I started going, what the fuck was that? So I went home that night and I'm being plagued. I'm being, my curiosity is at a point it's boring a hole in my brain that I'm going like, what is this? And a few things that Leo and Jay have taught me in a few sessions, because he always said, don't worry about it if you don't get it all at once. It'll, it'll come up over time. <laughs> like it'll surface from the bottom of the ocean or something. And I started noticing that, wait a second, this actually is not any different than the stuff I did with sound. Because I could make pictures as detailed as any Tibetan visualization with vibration. Because that, and when I, when I was the thing with the whole fire thing, that was the big method we used was vibration. Which was like, it'd be like if it were Tibetan Buddhism, you know, mantras, not the visualization, mantras was the focus, okay? You know, that's even where, what is Tibetan Buddhism originally called? Secret mantra. So, okay, but anyway, I, I had no idea. It just kind of happened. I, and I went through this through a couple of days, and then I found something. At one point, it was like, boop. There was this one point inside me, and I can't tell you if it was inside my brain or my toenail, but there was this one point inside me, and that when I opened that up, the next time I went and saw it, and I opened it up, I got full board visualizations. And it was the same exact thing when I opened it up. I got full board things with, with vibration. And they both, they had a common point. That's about the only thing I could say. It wasn't like you had one switch to turn on the lights and one switch to turn on the stereo. It's like they were together. They weren't separate. It was one thing. And I thought that, I thought that was pretty cool you know, as far as it all went. Um, but, but with Leo, there were times when he would do things with sound. And the one thing where I have to say it was visualization when he took me, I said, on one of these grand tours of the universe, because I left my body and I was seeing everything. But I hadn't even thought about the fact I was also getting the vibrations of everything I saw. I hadn't even thought about it because the sheer seeing of it, visualizing was like just so mind blowing. I mean, look, if you've been trying to visualize for 35 years and all of a sudden it happens like that, poof, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a shocker. I mean, it's like, you know, holy shit, what is going on here? Anyway, so that was it with Leo. And, you know, the other thing, and so he used to do things with calligraphy. As I said, whenever he would do strokes, it was like something would grab the inside of my body. And that's how I was able to learn the whole Bagua system at such a rapid speed. Because it wasn't like someone showing me how to do a move and then explaining it. How about you actually, how do you do it? Well, that's exactly how you do it. And then, you know, my brain at night would figure out what had happened to me, but I could reproduce it. And then I just had to apply my intelligence to looking for markers that could tell me how it was done. And if I did, if I got most of it, and if I didn't, I would ask Leo a question, one sentence he would answer it. He never used more than one sentence. He never needed to, because there was something about the underlying vibration of his voice that said it all. Forget about just the words. It wasn't an intellectual grokking of it. Cause look, I've tried 
teaching these things in Bagua, for example, I mean, I mean, I gotta use at least a thousand fucking lines to have somebody get something. That Leo, I got it one sentence and that was it. You mentioned Tibetan Buddhism there, and of course, the Karmapa, for example, Kali Rinpoche, etc. Famously, when they die, they're able to direct their rebirth. And that's called the Tulku, right? They're able to direct the rebirth. And, no, that, that is called Poa. And that is what a genuine Tulku is supposed to be, as one of those reincarnated souls. Right. What about Liu Hongjie? Do you have a sense of what happened to him after he died? No. As I would say, nor do I, nor does anyone who was a student of the Karmapa have any sense exactly what they did. They, in, in the, in the Tulku system, they, they would say where they're going to get born. These are going to be the signs and boom, boom, I go find a fucker, you know, so. And exactly how accurate some of that is, is, is somewhat debatable. I mean, cause they just have a bunch of objects. It isn't like, you know, okay, look, I'm not going to give you three pages of text. And if it's my reincarnation, he'll write the three pages of text. It's a text. It's it's nowhere near that that degree of specificity. What Leo and Jay told me about him is that he said a lot of times I would just kind of bemoan the world, and he would also bemoan the world. And this is a thing that's very famous for Taoist immortals and very high Taoists to come to. They just get. Okay, I'll try and translate this in a way that, that, that it made sense to me at the end. They get to actually experience the ongoing suffering, not only of every being on this planet, but elsewhere. So in Tibetan Buddhism, they have, they have a, a, a technique that is supposed to do that. And that, at least for 20, 25 years, was the Dalai Lama's main practice. It's called Tongling. And what it is, is just that you contact the suffering that sentient beings in the world are going through. And then you take that all inside you, and you put out everything you have that's positive. Okay? Yeah. Leo always said that one of the main reasons why I didn't want to teach meditation was that he said, your compassion is not yet of a high enough level to where you're not going to get some intellectual objections to it. And that's about how I felt about it. I mean, that's what I saw. I saw all these people coming to all these spiritual groups here and in Asia. And I said, what a bunch of fucking assholes. And I was okay with them being assholes. What I didn't want to do is have to put up with them when they were asking me to sort it out. And what they were, what I was going to have was their assholeness thrown at me like in those comedy shows where they throw a pie in your face. Because I had seen just so much stuff that was just, it was beyond the pale. And yet you had to have compassion for these people. You should have compassion for someone who's an evil motherfucker or someone who's so dumb it's amazing that they can touch their shoelaces. <laughs> so I'm serious. And that one of the one of the troubles with being fairly intelligent is that it has a tendency to create a certain level of arrogance in the sense of that you don't you can't identify with people who are too stupid. It's like it's just this is this is this breaks all civilization. Okay. Well, I got that and so I did this for ten years every day. 
for an hour or two a day. And I went through a lot of the times where I literally, in my experience, which of course the, you can't quantify anyone's individual experience, is that I felt the pain of all the beings on this planet. And then it actually started going off planet. Okay. And then at a certain point with that, I just kind of went, you know, there's not a damn thing they can do about it. They are, they are being so miserable, not because they choose it. They can't do anything about it. And then I said, well, even if I got to put up with some crap, let's see if we can help them out a bit. And I always thought about Leo got me out of my crap. God knows what it must have been like for him having me in the beginning, because I was like this powerhouse of energy when I was younger. And, you know, I wasn't always positive and I could be a real I could be a real pain. OK, I, I didn't I didn't grow up with good socialization. I never I never bought the rules of society. I would look right down to the bottom of where they were coming from. If they didn't make sense to me, I just said they're a bunch of shit. Who cares about it? Which actually is not the way to uh, make friends and influence people in this world. Okay, but so be it. So with, with Leo and with that, I started realizing, and then finally when it got, I started teaching a few people meditation and I started to watch getting better. I, and I got people who had been doing this meditation group and that meditation group for 10 or 20 years who are still, frankly speaking, as big an asshole as they were probably when they started. And then I started finding out within a few months, they weren't assholes anymore. And I said, I don't know exactly sure exactly how I'm doing this. You know, I knew the techniques and I, you know, and I did that, but I, did, I had no idea what it was inside of me that was catalyzing this. And I just said, I don't care what's inside of me. I think it's a good thing to do anyway. And then as time went on, I started being able to work out what it was inside of me that was catalyzing that. And with some people, if it was even possible with some people, I'm sorry, you gotta, you gotta go through a bunch of more lives before anybody's gonna be able to help you. But if I could help them, I did. And uh, so I started teaching meditation. What Which was Leo it? always said was my greatest gift. It's not your martial arts. It's not your physical healing capacities. I'm telling you, I was a whiz. I really was a whiz. I mean, doctors in hospitals were like, how the fuck is he doing this? I mean, I just, I had extreme talent. Probably, man, I'd done it a bunch of times before, but I have no idea why, but I did. But he said that that is your greatest whatever. And the name, one of the names he gave me is, because Chinese you always have two names. You have your literary name and your regular name, but Fan Jirshan, which means someone who does good for everybody. Hmm. That's what it means. And he says, that's really what you are. And meditation is the place where this can be expressed in its most definite way. And I'm giving you all the power that's in the Taoist lineage to do it. Of course, part of the problem of this is that when you can see things, when it's very obvious, what'll get a person out of the shit, that doesn't mean they can accept it. Because now we talk about, well, how deep the sensations inside their ego run, inside their eye. I, I, in some ways, I, don't, I, I use the word ego only because, because of Freud and all that kind of stuff, it got to be a very common phrase. But when in Asia, when they talk about the eye, they're not talking about the ego in any psychological sense. That's just a few things that are kind of attached to it on the side. So anyway, so I started teaching meditation. Uh, hmm. And Leo 
things would come up. And in Beijing, one of the horrible things about living there at that time is that, you know, we the movies try and give the impression of what it's like to live in a, tr in a totalitarian state. And they try and make very dramatic incidences that you could apply from your regular life. The only thing is that when things happen in a truly totalitarian state, it's really an exponential factor. And it's just that that's the only, the only tools they have is to try and make what someone can relate to because they've probably been through it in their life. But in a communist state, a lot of stuff goes down. It's like really, really grim. You know, as I said, I, I got to a point at the end of my time in Beijing where I wanted all the Chinese obliterated from my mind. And another reason I wanted obliterated from my mind is once you could speak Chinese and I was able to get rapport with Chinese people pretty easily. Then they started telling you about the Cultural Revolution. And I'm telling you, like, you know, I didn't want to hear it at a certain point. I mean, it was really grim and it was like, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm going to get an ice cream soda. No, oh, wow, oh, you're going to have some strychnine. Strychnine ice cream soda, you'll find it's a new flavor. No, it was pretty horrible. I mean, I did one thing with like that that you could say was maybe a parallel. I don't know if people can understand or not. Uh, the rest and recreation camps and the Nazis, uh, two of them, which most people have heard of is Auschwitz and Dachau, okay? And I went to Krakow and I spent almost a week there going there for hours a day, clearing out the spirits of the people from Dachau who were locked to that land who could not escape. Okay, it was almost, just think of it almost like some sort of big giant psychic cow was, uh, you know, was eating them or sucking the milk out of them or something. I did that for a week. Now, I got to tell you something. If I had not done tunneling for 10 years, there's no way I wouldn't have bailed inside of an hour. But I did. And it's like, you know, yeah, I was, you know, I was always, I was always very surprised because, you know, one of the big myths that runs around the, uh, the West, which I don't know if it's true or false. I really don't. You know, I'm not tr trying to make this like it's false. I don't know. Is that the Kabbalists? Was supposed to be the big spiritual source of everything in the West. So I would think, well, I mean, they, that came from Moses. And I found out historically a lot of that stuff is just not historically accurate. But leaving that aside, and that uh, they had all these superpowers and everything and everything and everything. And after having gone through that week in, uh, that week in Auschwitz and having done another three or four days in, in, in Dachau, um, I would do when I would, this was happening when I would go and teach courses in Europe. I would simply knock off a block of time. That's what I do with my free time. It's an interesting hobby if you want to think about it. But they they were still there, and I said, "Wait a second. These are Jews. This happened to. I mean, this was not happening to you know Catholics or Ubangi Indians from Africa." Okay, and so. I cannot believe that they did not go and free these people if they had all these abilities. The only conclusion I could come to is they didn't. And that there was a lot of stuff about the Kabbalah that is very exaggerated because most of what has gotten people about the Kabbalah, it's always supposed to be the superpowers that get people, but it isn't. Most of it's just a lot of intellectual stuff. And in this one sense, when it comes truly to spirituality, I've come to a conclusion that 
I'm in my 70s. I've come to I've come to this conclusion and it's been tested a million times. We take because stuff is written in a goddamn book. It's the truth. Well, I don't know about that. Because you want to know something? On that basis, Hollywood scriptwriters could come up with any alternative universe you want. One of the bigger disappointing spiritual movements that's out there. Okay, and I could really get a lot more negative than that, but I'll leave it at that. Is Scientology. And where did Scientology come from? It came from this ordinary guy who was one of the best science fiction writers ever. Won every award you could get, and you know. And and he just said, Well, you know, sheesh. Now, if I really wanted to have a good time, what should I do? Simple, make a religion. Religions have generally throughout all of human history been very profitable business. If you want to use the term business in the sense of a government's a business. They've always, always, always worked. And so he did this thing in Scientology, if you know anything about its history, they are fascist and a half. There's no two ways about it. There's no two ways about it. I mean, I've known people who've come into conflict with them because they said some nasty things about Scientology and they'll sick their army of private detectives and this and that on you. And, you know, the U.S. government, you know, was going to try and make them pay taxes. But what they did is they just did such a giant PR thing that it exhausted the people. And they decided they were going to spend way more money trying to get them to where they could be declassified as a religion. Then they would get money back from it in taxes. Anyway, whatever. And, you know, these days there's all sorts of films and exposés about them and whatnot. But I know people who were going through this in the 1950s. So it isn't, it isn't like this was just, you know, we tend to think, oh, something happened five years ago. Oh, it's, uh, it's kind of new. Yeah, well, wait, wait, it's been going on for a thousand years and that's no different than something that happened five years ago. Well, one thing has got legs and it just means that's kind of what they do. They weren't just having a bad patch. This is what they do. Anyway, so... With Leo, the thing that was always incredibly noticeable about him is that I've been around a lot of spiritual issues. You can find some things that just aren't quite right. Some things, look, human beings are human beings. They have personalities. And anyone who expects any human personality to be flawless clearly has never had an IQ test. It's, 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 I'm sorry. I mean, it just doesn't happen, okay? You know, oh, we have our sins, we have our faults. Yeah, that's the human condition. With Leo, I never saw a fault. I never saw anything that was even remotely funny. And he was just straight, and he would use words as little as possible. And he would just listen carefully. Because when I say something, I really mean it. You know, a lot of times people, oh, they say a lot, and you listen, and you, know, you get bored, and listen to it, and they come back again. Not with him. Because he didn't like to repeat himself. So he said, I had enough intelligence to grok most of what he was saying the first time around. He never would have taught me. He said, that would have been an un... I wouldn't have wanted the burden. I'm an old man now. Who the hell needs to go through that in your old age? So that's kind of answering, like, what were some of the things? I mean, there were other things. I mean, like, I'm a martial arts maven, martial arts expert. I've done it since I've been a kid. I've done the really heavy stuff in the martial art game, not... 
for competition, not for show, but for real. And I mean, here I am twice his size. He put his hand on me. I couldn't move it. Okay. If he moved me, I couldn't stop him. Okay. One finger, boom. And the next thing I'm flying across the room. Things which physically should be impossible. But they, they just did him like it was just normal. And he says it's because it really only is mind. That's all it is. A lot of what we think is mind-body fusion or, you know, getting your mind to tell your body to take it. No, there's something beyond that. There's just the, the sheer force of mind, the sheer force of spirit, which is something which cannot be judged by normal human standards. That was the way he put it. Yeah, so... You know, he did things physically. I mean, like one of the, I mean, I wrote about this in my power of internal martial arts. The day before he died, he was saying, okay, well, you know, you've gone. So now we're going to go into the last phase of Tai Chi training. And so a midpoint in Tai Chi training is what they call pushing hands. Most people think that's fighting. It's not fighting. You know, you know, but anyway, it's a midpoint. And what he did is I went and next thing he puts his hands underneath my elbows like this. And he lifts both of my feet right off the ground. My whole body goes up until I'm up here. Okay, so you figure his hands are here. I mean, that's how far off the ground I went. But he did it in slow motion. It wasn't like he was some leveraged chick just or something to get my energy to flow. He did it in slow motion. And he took me down in slow motion. Okay, and uh, I'm trying to get my hands off him for all the good it did to me. That was the land. So they, they have a thing, and the, 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 the signature move of Tai Chi is called Peng Lu Jian. Okay, and Peng Lu Jian has Liu or yielding, has Jian Lan Lian Sui. Okay, Jian just means you stick to him, Lan means you stick to him no matter how he moves, Nian is where you penetrate them. But sway is where it's like magnetism. It's as though I put my hand on top of a trunk and then I just lift it up in the air with my hand and I put it down in my hand. Now, the first thing of John Nanian can be done with an excellent control, not a mediocre control, excellent, okay? So let, 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 let's start talking about, you know, Olympic athletes or top pro sportsmen of your body and your energy and your mind. Sway cannot. Because sway now is actually counter, counteracting gravity. And these other things aren't. These other things are using gravity to maximum extent. But this is going beyond gravity. So, oh, I show me the final Bagua palm change, which was like fucking freaky with the way the room became and the inside of my body became. And then he says, okay, so it's good. Now we'll finish and... And then, you know, when you come back, then we'll now, now, now I think you're ready for internal alchemy to really get into it. He had taught me internal alchemy. I learned the principle of it more or less, but no, 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 no now we're really going to do it. Now, of course, what happens? I come the next morning and he's dead. You know, because I, I made the statement, oh, you have no idea that tired me out. And he says, well, you have no idea how much it tired me out. Okay. I didn't get that literally. That was the last hurrah. That was the last flash before the star went out. 
uh, beside crying for weeks on end and, and feeling miserable. It's like, you know, I mean, I was his adopted son, but I got to tell you, this was a lot stronger than what you get for dear old dad. This, this, this is the kind of sadness when you talk about what, what one of these, you know, people became enlightened, what they were like when their guru died. It doesn't last that long. Within a couple of weeks, I arrived at the point like it was with Tonling, where no matter what happened, I just took it in and turned in that compassion. But still, for a couple of weeks, it was really rough. It was really rough. Mm. My students told me for many years when I would talk about Leo, they would like just get affected by something that was really, really powerful. Not anymore, because now it's just everything's the same. Everything is coming out of the Tao or the primordial soup or whatever term you want to use. And that permeates everything. Well, when you get when you start getting into that to whatever degree, then all these minor yin yang variations, they just don't have an impact anymore. How do you relate now to the suffering and pain of the of the world and beyond? You're talking about that's fascinating. You're talking about Auschwitz and what you did there. Was it Tong Len you did there? No, no. What I did is the same thing you do in exorcisms. I hmm. dissolved the energy of what was holding them in that place and the suffering you would go through. I wasn't doing. I wasn't doing Tong Len. It was like. Uh, I have a cup full of water. I just dissolved the water till it was gone. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a tongue. I wasn't, that, that, what, what I did was straight Taoist exorcism. Nothing to do with Buddhism. Mm. I was only saying that what the what the tongling thing did was get me over the really over the. What's that way that dumb motherfucker? You know, like, you know, we would say in New York, man, why don't you go and play in traffic and let a car run you over? <laughs> I mean, that's about all you're good for. Okay, and that's a very New York City kind of attitude, uh, which doesn't mean you're trying to kill the person. It's just, no. you know, like, like like this person is so damn ridiculous. If there was any universal justice in the, in the world, <laughs> he'd be gone, you know, just because he's so ridiculous. But uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I did Taoist dissolving. I did what I learned as an exorcist. Do you still do that for locations, either remotely or in person? I don't practice exorcism often. Hmm. Only on very special occasions. You know, I've done it with some students because, you know, just rather than having to spend 30 or 50 hours, I'd rather just do something where in three minutes I can take care of them. Uh, you know, but no, and I'm not offering, I'm saying this very specifically because I'm not offering my services. No, that's not what I meant, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I had that too. The reason why in my original biography with opening the energy gates in my body, I just mentioned, oh yeah, I did some Taoist healing work. I did not put in any sort of um, detail because my, my oath as a Taoist priest was that I had to complete healing work on 10,000 patients before I was free of the obligation. After that, I was free to do it or not. But the first 10,000, it wasn't my freedom, just like when I learned the Taoist sexual stuff, because I had all sorts of, shall we say, tricky stuff in my family background. I had to have sex with a thousand women before I was no longer obligated to have sex. 
okay this wasn't like you know oh wow 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 beautiful babe yeah no 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 you know you got to realize this one thing if you go through a thousand women three or four hundred three or four hundred of them or some number like that are going to have what in Taoism they call dead pussies it's like you go to bed with them you do whatever you suck whatever you stick whatever in you do whatever transfers and all you're going through the whole time is when the hell is this going to be over how the hell can I get out of here where in the West, where especially we have this whole puritanical stuff, it's like, it's a big thing to get laid. Yeah, but you know something? Talk to rock stars sometimes who have the legions of uh, groupies coming through. And then a lot of them, man, they're just happy if they find one woman they can be married to. And, you know, and it was like the rest of it was like a lot of it was just a, a big, boring mess. Okay, it's something like that, but not exactly the same, but it's as good a metaphor as I can come up with. Well, this has been fascinating, Bruce. Thank you very much. But something I think that would be useful for the people who are going to listen to this is, look, there is the fire in the water tradition in Taoism. And the water tradition of Taoism the phrase which only people who do the fire traditions start to realize at a very advanced level is that how do you put forth your full effort your full everything but without force without using force at all letting things happen the way they will and in the water method there's no attempt to all the methods in the water method are not the attempt that I do. I do A to get B. I'm doing this to get that. No, it isn't. You do A because it's a good thing to do, and it will commonly result in B arriving. But there's not, I do it to get something. It's not transactional or prid pro quo. It's not, it's not done for that reason. It's really not. So, you know, I mean... Generally in Taoism, uh, the standing and the moving practices are the entry level into just getting chi to really work inside the body. The sitting practices, now understand what you do in the standing and the moving, everything else can be done inside those, but it's much harder to get it. As an initial entry point, they're the easiest. But then if you want to start dealing with the emotional and the mental and the psychic and the karmic, that stuff is most easily done through sitting. Okay? Now, which is not to say that a lot of people will take the standing and then they'll try and do it like it's sitting. It's just that it's harder. So it's like, you know, why, 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 why spend 100 grand to get something done you could get done with 20? That's a simple way of putting it. So, and then the last one, the next one, lying down, is considered to be the most difficult of them all. Because when you do lying down practices, you have to let your body get completely relaxed. And then you move energy through your channels. And you go through from the physical to the emotional to the mental. But you're doing it lying down and your body is totally relaxed to where it can appear as though you're asleep. Okay, I remember that we had, I was, I used to like doing, for a lot of years, I really liked doing lying down practices. No two ways about it. And there was, we had this, we had this earthquake in San Francisco, I think it was 89. 
And um, around that time, I'd be lying down for hours. And at times, I would snore. But I was wide awake. My body was asleep. And when your body is asleep, you snore. You can snore. And, uh, you know, my ex-wife at that time, she was saying, blah, 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 blah. And she, you know, she thought I was asleep. Just, I was just going to think she was saying is to relieve her frustration. And then in the middle of it, I would say like one or two sentences that would sort everything out, which showed her that I had heard everything that had gone on. I had processed, processed it. But normally, most of the time, I wouldn't bother to respond. What for? You know, what I was doing really had nothing to do with that. I mean, or it didn't matter if I had something to do with it or not. But in this particular case, the thing that happened, it was somewhat important. Okay. And then, you know, other things was around that era. So again, yeah. And now, I mean, you know, Taoism is very big on a progressive approach. And it's based on this. If your only concern was spiritual awakening and being able to be awake and do stuff after you die, then all these things about making your body healthy, making your emotions healthy, having your mind be healthy, Having karma be healthy, so what? If you just could cut straight to the chase and go past karma into where you find out what your eye is, when you find, then why not just go straight to there? Why, why bother with the rest of it? But in the Dzogchen tradition in, in Tibet, there are really like two really major streams of thought. Dzogchen was originally supposed to have been started kind of going from Vajrasafa, but it manifests in this world and a guy called Garab Dorje. And when Garab Dorje taught, right, he did stuff where he could just boom, one shot. If, you're, if your karma was cleared up enough, one shot, you got enlightened. But almost everything that got attached to that downstream went through you did all the stuff you did in Tibetan Tantra first to get rid of this block in your mind and that block in your mind and this block and that block and that block. And only when you got to the very end, did they give you the one thing that could tick you over because they found that if they gave it to most people that could tick them over, it didn't go anywhere. It was like uh, steam got released, combine a minute or two and it's gone. Where when it was something you go from nothing, you went, you went to steam that never went away. And they're two very different things. And so, you know, some people who went through, you know, did it direct, the three statements of Garab Dorje, they would go direct. And then some people who would even still, they'd go through all the tantra and all this stuff. And at the very end, they'd throw the three, the three, the three statements of Garab Dorje into it. What most people don't realize is that the ones who just do the three statements of Garab Dorje, if you didn't have the foundation, you have no way for them to work. Okay, it's like I want to. I want to build. And that's not the Empire State Building anymore. I don't know what the biggest building in the world is. It was a trade center, but it got blown up. You want to build a trade center? I'm sorry, you can't just 
stick up all the wires and whatnot up into the air, they will fall to the ground. They have to have a structure to hold them. So this is something that occurs. Ramana Mahasha, when he did his thing of who am I, you had to go through all the things that you weren't before you could get to the point where you could see the thing that you were. I'm just saying these, these are methods. So, you know, me, I get in one sense, it's somewhat disappointing. I was a martial art guy when I was younger. So I would teach Tai Chi and I would teach the martial arts side of Tai Chi. Most people say Tai Chi does nothing to do with martial arts. You can't do anything with martial arts. And what we're going to fight in slow motion, which I really, to me, shows me that those people have a very low IQ. It's okay. They can't see it's obvious. Uh, so it's a matter of training. And, then, and there's a whole thing about, well, how do you use all the stuff in Tai Chi? Which is never explained. And maybe two or 3% of people nowadays who do Tai Chi know anything about it. But then the, the statements about Tai Chi is not for martial arts and for fighting is all coming from the 97% who don't know anything about it. And they forget, you know, the stuff of Tai Chi, the, the way it came about in its history and you know, being convoy guards and being the emperor's guards, where to be an emperor's guard, you got to be pretty good because everyone's trying to kill the emperor. Okay, so you got you to be the best of the best. So, okay, so I got into it for that because I did martial arts and I like martial arts and I was always after the elephant punch, you know. Uh, but, but they didn't realize that inside the original Taoism, from where the outer Negong and Qigong structures that were just part of their, their energy practice, they never realized how that stuff was inside of Tai Chi because they never were exposed to it because you got paid by showing, you know, people will always pay and be very happy showing that you're the biggest alpha ape in the group. If you're, if you're King Kong, you could get billions of people lining up in front of you wanting to, wanting to make you their God. But that's a different thing as saying, okay, what kind of God is it? What does it do? What can it do? What can it do? And then you have so many people, what I call the armchair warriors that, you know, from seeing things on YouTube or reading books in their fantasy world, and they think they can go out, you know, and beat up anybody. And as soon as they come into anybody who has any real practical fighting experience, they just get their butts kicked. And why? Because they never actually learned how to kick butt. And, you know, it isn't, and even the people who are some of the naturally strongest, roughest people on the planet, they go down to people who are highly trained to kick butt because they have no idea. They, they don't know the tricks of the game, as it were. Any other people do. So, so, you know, I got where I was coming back in my 20s and I was teaching the martial arts stuff, especially when I was in New York, because in New York, I had so many students who had been raped mugged, hospitalized by youthful upsetness, for want of a better word, whatever you want to call the young criminals. And so I taught them how to do something because, you know, I just wanted to see them have a life or be able, or, you know, as I would put it, well, you might not care. You might be a really good Christian. Turn the other cheek. You might be perfectly fine with them putting you in the hospital. Are you perfectly fine with them putting the mother of the child in the hospital or putting the child in the hospital or damaging them for life? How do you feel about that? And if you could have a way of preventing that, do you feel any responsibility for being able to do that? That was one side. Then you also had the other crowd of 
you know, I'm sorry. Human beings are barking dogs. Dogs like to fight. And a lot of dogs like to kill. Why? I don't know. You got to talk whoever was the... My joke is talk to the spacemen who created the people on the Earth or whoever did it. Because whoever did it, they built that right into the program. You'd have to ask them what their opinion was because I sure as hell can't figure it out. So, you know, and then it started coming. Oh, come back. Well, people, they just want to learn about the energy work and... The trouble is that it's very hard to learn about the energy work in Tai Chi in its entirety without the martial arts stuff because by showing you how it can be used, you can actually, it can make it where it's concrete to you what you're trying to do when you're just doing it for yourself. And that's a whole different scene from learning Tai Chi for fighting. Because in learning Tai Chi for fighting, you got to go from that place. Now you also have to learn how to fight. And you have to get past your fear and you've got to get past all your inner psychological obstacles, which is not a small thing to do. I mean, everything in, in Taoism, everything, at, at the most simple level can be described that yin and yang, conflict, wonderfulness, all of it, how it all comes out of Taiji. The Taiji, which is in the middle, is where all of it comes out of. And the way not only through getting past suffering, but also getting into satisfaction with existence. Which you could say is a form of suffering, but it's not exactly the same thing. That these are these are major things that you know the Taoists have. And I, and I it made sense to me. When I was younger. I kept with the Taoist thing and kept on going and just kept on walking past the, the Buddhist stuff because the, the precepts of Taoism made more sense to me. Which just could mean that my, could be my mind was warped, I don't know, but it did. And then when I kind of got to where at least the basic point of Taoism was, then I went back to Buddhism and I got what they said. And, um, you know, they have a thing that Taoism and Buddhism are, are really close. I mean, they're, they're not... Practice methods are not that close. They're different. But where they're really going for, the type of hill they're trying to climb is a very similar hill. And I just think that Taoism is a lot more natural. I mean, everything, you know, if you can actually just take that one statement I said that there is nothing inside of one person that's not in every person in this world. And then... If you can go to the next place, which is really where it gets good, and so what? And that means, and so what to everything that's inside of one person and every other person? So what? Where almost all of the human existence is about, oh no, this is so what, and that is so what. And that's why with Taoism, it goes back to the simple words, wu so hui and yo so hui. Yo so hui, what's important, it's this and it's that. Is any of it? Well, yeah, from practical things, some things are more useful. But in terms of real human satisfaction, as long as you posit a yin or a yang as being all that important, the only thing that can be guaranteed is that whatever that source of satisfaction, I don't like the word happy, because if you know how to jiggle your energy channels, you can make yourself happy at will. It doesn't really mean much. It's just an energetic state the body goes into. But if you talk about satisfaction, the sense of that, really, if this is how it has to be for all time, I'm cool. And that is something about the Taoism that I always, always kind of made sense to me.
Of course, getting past yin and yang, that's a bear. No two ways, that's a bear. Everyone in Tibet and every one of these tantras, eh, the nine levels of tantra, every one of them is really talking about getting past a certain type of yin yang glitch. So that's one way of doing it. There are other ways of doing it. Anyway, Taoism did it for me. And, you know, but it's, it's difficult for me personally teaching Taoism in the West for one real reason. You're always having to explain the damn thing to everybody. And that's exhausting. Buddhists at least have got a million books on it and have got millions of Buddhist teachers on it. Well, not many, but they've got a huge number. But it's that it's known. And the hardest thing to do is to enter something into a culture, any culture, that doesn't have anything that's parallel to it. That's, that's, and it's a very frustrating and a whatever thing. And, you know, it's frustrating. I mean, I don't, I, I don't get frustrated more as I just kind of accept it. That's kind of how it is. But it's, um, I mean, I'm giving this interview. Yeah, maybe I'll get a few students, people to join my web, my, my, get some of the products I have that are explaining it. But everything I've been doing, honestly, is in the hope that it's somehow going to form something that after I'm dead, it's going to catch on somehow. Because I personally think, and this is the personal thing, I'm from New York City. And New York City can be pretty rough. Okay, so all this political correctness and everybody wanting to be a goody-goody two-shoes and whatever, so God will love them and they'll go to heaven or whatever. These people in New York don't give a shit about that because it smacks in the face of reality. Now, granted, New York City is a pretty crowded place, so it's got unique things about it, the environment, but there is something just about, you know, like what's for real and what's bullshit. And fancy words don't make them real they make them pleasing and one thing i like about Taoism is that they don't they don't gauge in they don't engage in the fancy words that much they're always trying to go for what is real what is real in the thing and the rest of it so what you know honestly and truly you, you wear a warm coat in the winter if it's freezing out to stay warm you don't wear it because it's got like all these cute little buttons and pieces of embroidery and a little piece of leather hanging out and that. So you wear it, you wear it because of its value and that practicality of Taoism is the thing I always appreciate. And even though when you really get into Buddhism, it's exceedingly practical. But the way that I've seen it portrayed from the time I've been a kid is a little bit too metaphysical, which is the whole thing about Indian religions in general. This has been described not by me, but by more scholars than I can count. The religions that came out of India, their central points were always very metaphysical. Whereas Taoists, and this has been described by everybody too, it was always very practical. That's why they were called the scientists of ancient China. The emphasis was on what's real, what's more down on the ground. And unfortunately, if you like the fancy flowery stuff, What's down on the ground often is a little bit disturbing. Okay, not not because of what the specifics are, but the whole the general process. 
you know, what is it? What, what is in one sense? What does a politician do? He lies to his teeth, but he tries to say it in a way that'll get you excited and you'll love it. But when you take away all the packaging, there's nothing there. And Taoism have always said, you know, a major principle in Taoism is separating the real from the false. And so I like that emphasis on, on, on being real. And maybe that's just because I came from New York and that's something that was more appealing. You know, because uh, that's all I can say. Anyway, it was a pleasure chatting with you. If people want to get in touch with me, you'll have it. I have a website. I've got 16 books I've done. I'm, I'm uh, in the process of trying to eventually get them converted into ebooks because I don't want to have the burden of I'm supposed to keep these things in print after. It's a real pain in the ass, constantly reprinting books. It really is. I mean, you know, anyone who thinks it's fun ought to try it sometime. And I guarantee you will get disabused of it. Uh, but so hopefully that they can they can stay alive and for a long time. And listen, uh, if something like this one or maybe other podcasts I do, you can ask me the question of what's like Taoism like in China now. I have left China for all practical purposes for 30 years. How the hell do I know? I mean, really, I'm serious. I haven't been, I haven't been in the middle of the froth. So, you know, it's, it's, I know what it was. I know what it was when I was there. And the big things about Taoism haven't changed in a couple of thousand years. So, but I couldn't tell you how to go find people because I didn't find the people I found because I was looking for them. I was looking for martial arts and I ended up in Taoism. And the person who got me in, Leo's other student, hey, I mean, I just went to a martial art magazine because this guy in a hotel I was in, his father had been in the Flying Tigers in World War II. He said, oh, one of my father's people in the Flying Tigers got a martial art magazine. I went there. And then all this stuff started opening up. I didn't go to the martial art magazine because I wanted to find someone doing Bagua. He just said, oh, there's this guy who put an ad in the paper, a guy come from Beijing. And, you know, Bagua people from Beijing and Hong Kong are pretty damn rare at that time. That most of these things are that if this has at least given you something about what I've said has made sense. And that, that, that's, that, that's how I've done everything in my life. I've just done things that made sense. And I've never been able to figure out whether they were good or bad, to tell you the truth. You know, time, t- time is the only thing that will prove that. But if it is, I hope that somewhere, even if it's 50 years after I'm done, We'll get some kid somewhere who thinks it's a good idea and they'll go and they'll put their life into it. And I hope I'm portraying at least a bit what it is and why it makes sense. Best that I could do. Bruce Francis, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.